0: Lesson. I'm going to ask everybody in here to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Should be a Bible in front of you in the seat back, uh, one close by if you don't have one, or maybe you have it on your device, on your phone or your iPad. As a young boy growing up, do we have we have volume back there? Can you hear? Okay, okay. Uh, As a young boy growing up, (coughs) I had a picture uh, above my bed of of Jesus. Uh, it was not an actual photograph, obviously, because nobody had cameras back in those days. It was a representation of Jesus and what he might have looked like. And uh, let's go ahead and show that first picture that we have. Uh, this is, I believe, the very picture that I had. And he had uh, kind of long hair and kind of rosy cheeks, not overly feminine like some pictures, but a, a very serious look. And I, I would see that every night. <clears throat> and I wouldn't pray to it, but it would prompt me to pray and to remember to say my prayers as a young uh, a young boy growing up. There was another famous picture, uh, also from that uh, time period approximately, of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here he is kneeling by this <coughs> rock, and he had his hands folded and his face uplifted to the Father. He was surrounded by uh, darkness uh, with a, a light breaking through the clouds and In the distance, and I don't know that I ever saw it, and I don't know that you can see it here, but in the distance, there are people coming for him. I think it's over to his right, uh, to our right, rather, as we're looking at the picture. A group of people coming to falsely accuse him and arrest him. After uh, instituting the Lord's Supper or communion that we observe here the first Sunday of every month, uh, Jesus and his disciples <coughs> sang a hymn, and then he walked to the garden of Gethsemane to begin to pray. And that's where we are in Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Down toward the end of the chapter, Luke 22, verse 39. Then, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. I want you to notice a couple of things. They left the upper room where they had just instituted communion, and they went where he usually did. It was not an uncommon thing for him to go to the Mount of Olives to pray. And there he told them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. Jesus, who knows all things, knew exactly what was coming in the immediate future. He walked away about a stone's throw. And that knelt down and prayed. So he left the disciples. He said, I want you to pray here that you won't be tempted, won't enter into that temptation, certainly that you won't succumb to that temptation. And then, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe 60 or 70 or 80 feet away, he walked further away, and he, he knelt down there, and he prayed. And that's what this is depicting, or the picture was depicting here. He says, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done. Not mine. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great droplets of blood. At last he stood up again and returned uh, to the disciples, only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping? asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. Interestingly enough, some of you who have study Bibles, uh, after Uh, Verse 44, does it say anything in your study Bibles? Is there any kind of a a note, any kind of a punctuation mark? Does anybody have anything there after verse 44? Nobody? In the uh, NLT, there's an asterisk right after verse 44. Now, what happens and what follows is that verses 43 and 44 were not included in many of the older manuscripts. Now, you understand that we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts of the Old and New Testaments, right? And that that's how we have the completed Word of God. We don't have the originals right now, but we have these thousands and thousands of copies to verify what is accurate, what was said, what was included, and verses 43 and 44 were not included. Now, so that brings a question mark to our minds. Uh, What does that mean to the integrity of the text? Can we trust the Word of God? My answer to that is we can absolutely trust the Word of God. And the very fact that there would be an asterisk there and say that these two verses are not found in some of the oldest manuscripts is an obvious, uh, it's not keeping in shrouded in secrecy something. It's letting everyone know uh, that out of the thousands, there were were many, the majority of which uh, did not have these two verses. But there's many uh, explanations. These, these verses are all hand-copied, obviously, by scribes, meticulously hand-copied. Uh, maybe they accidentally omitted at some point those particular two verses. Maybe the notes were added in the margin by some scribe at some point to kind of uh, amplify the meaning, kind of like a running commentary. But my question to you this morning is, th- does it do injury to the uh, verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God? Does it take away from the fact that every word of God, of, of God is absolutely inspired word for word? My answer would be absolutely not. It doesn't take away from that. In fact, uh, that verbal plenary inspiration deals with not translations but with originals. So the originals... Uh, which we don't have, but we have copies of. Uh, those were the things that were verbally and, and, and completely inspired. So does it change then? The second question would be, does it change the intensity of what was happening here? Does it, uh, does it muddy anything up? Does it, is it negated? And I think not because Matthew's gospel in a verse that is absolutely corroborated in the uh, majority of, uh, text says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. That's something he said according to Matthew's gospel. There's no question about it. There's no asterisk there. And so whatever he was going through was so traumatic that he was to the point of dying even in the Garden of Eden. Such agony and such pressure was upon him. So the idea uh, of being under physical duress and spiritual duress uh, in in, uh, Luke's gospel is, is, is neither here nor there regards to this in Matthew four eleven, after the temptation in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without eating um, an angel came and ministered to Jesus Christ the devil left him and behold angels came and ministered unto him so in fact an angel may have come we don't know what we're just saying is and what Luke gospel is teaching us here is that uh, or the asterisk there is teaching us is that maybe maybe this wasn't in the oldest manuscripts but the fact the angels did minister to the Lord uh, is corroborated in Matthew's gospel, and then in Matthew twenty six fifty three, Jesus said, "Do you think I can cannot now pray to my Father and He will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? A legion of, of Roman soldiers was six thousand troops and a hundred and twenty um, cavalry. So you had uh, six, with with uh, twelve legions, you would have seventy three thousand four hundred and forty men." And since it only took one angel to completely destroy 185,000 Assyrians in one of the battles in the Old Testament, I think what he's saying is here is that Jesus had plenty of unlimited power against the Romans uh, should he call for it. So, the, so angels were at his beck and call. Angels were, Now, whether they were there in Luke chapter 22, whatever, we're not sure, but um, they, they for sure were there. So there's no danger, no injury done to the text there. Oddly enough, then, I would have thought that John 17, which is Christ's high intercessory prayer, was prayed in Gethsemane. However, after John 17, in John chapter 18, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where there was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. Now, Whatever happened, they went from the upper room, they went to outside, they went to the garden of Gethsemane, and when I think of a garden, I don't know about you, but when I think of a garden, I think of flowers, I think of fragrances, I think of bees buzzing, I think of perhaps the smell of tilled, freshly tilled soil, I think of the warmth of the sun, I think of planting, I think of watering, I don't like to think of weeding but that's something you have to think about, and I think of harvesting. This one was different. This was really an olive grove. This was one where olive trees grew. This is one where there was even an olive press, and it's interesting. There would be an olive press to which Jesus would go and pray routinely because, as you know, the oil is is taken from the olive by a pressing process, and Jesus' blood uh, was was extracted that paid for our sins by the pressing a uh, process and 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 he shed his blood for us. So it becomes the scene of the beginning of his agony, betrayal, and arrest. This is what he foresaw coming. This is what he knew was going to happen. This is the part that um, that he prayed uh, to let this cup pass from, which we'll see in a minute. So the garden was a place he came often. He brought his disciples with him. There were eight at the entrance of the garden. There were three who went with them further, but they had fallen asleep. There was one who had betrayed him. My question is, which group are we in? With which group are we? Are we with the eight who were on, kind of on the fringes? Are we with the eight and, and, and kind of out here, we, we're Christians. We go to church every so often. We, we try to read our Bibles every once in a while. We, we pray whenever we get in trouble, but, you know, we're kind of on the fringes. Are we like the three who were in the inner circle, who came with him? who went with him through more things than the rest of them did and, and were close by his side, and yet they had fallen asleep? Are we the one who betrayed him? I certainly hope that's not the case. The King James account of this says that he went a little further. He went a little further. And I don't think we do any injustice to the word of God by saying, in reality, Jesus went a lot further for us than anyone else has ever gone. No one else came from heaven to redeem us. That's certainly true. No one else loved us more than he loved us. Even these kids that love their brother and sister are not going to volunteer to take their punishment time out for a year. No one else endured what he endured for us. No one else rose from the dead no one else is promised to come back from heaven and to take us uh, to be with him so the garden a place uh, of gethsemane a place where he prayed oftentimes a place where he was going to wind up his earthly ministry a place where in just moments he would be arrested and we'd be let off this is the beginning of his sorrows and in that garden i believe the pressure was overwhelming and in that garden uh, i don't doubt that that Uh, that he was under huge physical, mental, and psychological duress knowing what was going to come. In fact, he says, let this cup pass from me. So we see the cup. The temptation, can we say this? For Jesus was to abandon Calvary. The temptation was to abandon Calvary. How in the world could the Son of God who came down for the express purpose of dying on the cross come down to the very moments before he is to die on the cross and say, Lord, if it's possible, God, let this pass from me. He was tasting of his father's wrath upon sin, which he had never, ever tasted before. He was beginning to understand how the separation from his father would affect him. Jesus prayed that he wouldn't have to go through with it. But, folks, there is no other way. There was no other way. There is only one way. That one way is Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. I didn't say that. The Bible says that. No Baptist preacher said that. God the Father said that. So he prayed, knowing what was ahead, knowing what lies before him. He prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Father, if you, if it's possible, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to be separated from you. I don't want your wrath coming down upon me in this way. I don't want, we've never had, they've never had any controversy between them. The Godhead perfectly unified in every way for all of eternity. Before there was time, one, and after there will be no more time. One, forever, but except for this punctuation mark this point in time when jesus took your sins and mine upon himself jesus would be crucified at calvary but his will was crucified in the garden of eden or in the garden of gethsemane so my question to you is has your will been crucified Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Have you been crucified? Have you crucified the flesh? Have you said to the flesh, as much as, as within me, I, I, I give all of that up for Christ. I, I give myself totally to him. Paul begged them, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercy of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. We recoil at the cross, just as He did. We don't want to be crucified. We want to do what we want to do, don't we? We know things are wrong, and we still want to do them. What's with that? Are we not His child if we, if we know that things are wrong, but we still want to do them? Well, I, let me ask you this. Do you have any children? Do they ever want to do what they know is not right? Are they still your children? We're flawed human beings. We have a sin nature. So we do battle. We do a lot more battle than we have to do because we need to just surrender. We need to daily surrender. We need to every single moment surrender as much as we possibly can to God. So how how about your self-crucified life? Have, has your will been crucified? Have you died to self that you might live for him? The third thing is the contents of the cup. Loneliness. <clears throat> it says here, uh, the, the word heavy, in the text, comes from the Greek word meaning away from one's people or not at home. Away from one's people or not at home. It implies homesickness. Be honest with me. Have you ever been homesick? Anybody here ever been homesick? First time I went away, I was talking to some folks here from uh, <clears throat> from Illinois, and first time uh, I went away from home really for a long period of time. Well, I can remember one time before that, uh, on a, I stayed with my grandparents uh, for Two or three weeks, and I got a little homesick. But I, I left uh, home, at seventeen, went down to the University of Illinois, and uh, man, I got so I got so homesick I couldn't hardly stand it. I just and some of you, some of you in the Navy probably went through that. If 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 your first way a trip away from home was to be in the United States Navy, and you wound up somewhere where you didn't know anything about the place, you didn't know any people there, and all of a sudden here comes Thanksgiving, here comes Christmas, here comes holidays, and nobody to get along along with. Loneliness, homesickness, Uh, Jesus was homesick for heaven. He was, he was away from his own people. He was not at home. He was not with the Father, not with the Spirit. He was not with the angelic creation. He was, he was, he was homesick for heaven. So uh, even his inner circle failed him because three times they fell asleep. And so I ask you this question by way of application. Are, are we asleep in today's world? Are we falling asleep when the whole world's going, hey, this world's getting crazier and crazier by the moment? And what makes us think the United States of America is immune from some of the craziness that goes on in other parts of the world, it seems to me like it's more believable right now that things could happen here that we only witness on television from somewhere 6,000 miles away or 5,000 miles away could happen here. Crazy days in which we live. Are we praying? Do we care? Are we concerned? Are we asleep? Or are we watching and praying? That watching and praying was a military term. Being on watch. The idea of on watch. Vigilant. So loneliness was part of drinking of that cup. Sorrow was a big part. There are two kinds of sorrow. Everybody here has experienced sorrow. There are two kinds. One of them is remorse. Sorrow for what we did because we got caught, because it was not right, because it was not good for us. Judas knew that kind of a sorrow. Judas betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver price of a common slave. He was so remorseful at the end, he realized what he'd done was wrong. He took the bag of silver, took it back to the Jewish leaders. They wouldn't accept it. He threw it down on the floor and left. He went out and hung himself. He had remorse, but not with repentance. There's another kind of sorrow. It's a godly sorrow. It's when we're sorrowful for the way we've acted. Sorrowful for what we've done. Sorrowful like the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter Three times deny the Lord. Three times before the rooster crowed a second time. He denied the Lord three times. No, I'm not one of his disciples. No, I don't know what you're talking about. Never been with a guy. On the third time, he even cursed as he did so. Probably a sailor. Well, he was on a fishing boat anyhow. <clears throat> so he cursed like a sailor and... And then the rooster crowed, and he wept, and he wept bitterly. And he did not go out and hang himself. But when the Lord said, Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, I love you. Peter asked him three times. Why? Because he denied him three times. His was a godly sorrow that led to repentance. Thank God for conviction and godly sorrow. That's what brings us back to God when we know we're wrong otherwise we just keep on going we keep on down the wrong road so one wept and ended it all the other wept and repented first sorrow was death the second sorrow is life jesus was sorrowful over our sinful condition and his soon coming separation from god are you are we sorry for our sin or do we just secretly cover it, hide it. Do we enjoy it so much that we don't, uh, we don't shed a tear over it at all? Third thing in that cup was suffering. Physically, the beating, the crucifixion, unimaginable. We'll go into a little more detail of the actual consequences of a crucifixion. Have you ever heard that before? The actual consequences of a crucifixion, what, what really took place, what really uh, the, the, the person being crucified experiences. Uh, physically, it was unimaginable. Mentally, emotionally, he was rejected by his own people. The very reason he came to the earth was turned upside down and thrown in his face. Socially, he was accused of being a friend of sinners. He was an outcast. Financially, he became poor. The Bible says for Our sakes. Racially, he was the king of the Jews, a hated people in in this day. Uh, uh, Spiritually, he was cut off from his father. And, folks, I got to tell you something. His suffering was unimaginable, so that our suffering is only for a season. It's only for a while. There's a limit to the amount of suffering we do. The other thing that was in that cup that he was trying to avoid was sin. And it's why I tried to share with the young people here a little while ago. He became sin for us he was made sin second corinthians 5:21 says for he the father made him jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin he became in other words our sin bearer he did not become a sinner he was tempted in all ways like we are but he never ever yielded one time but he was he was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of god in him this was a judicial act of god the father declaring Jesus as the this one it's like if you if you get a chuck have you ever had a traffic ticket yeah recently do you want to confess your sins today we can set up a little booth here no okay we'll just we'll leave it at that all right so okay all right long time ago so let's suppose chuck let's suppose uh, that uh, that you uh, get a ticket on your way to you're going to sacramento Okay, next week. So you're on your way to Sacramento, and you get a ticket. Uh, friendly California Highway Patrol pulls you over, and they said, uh, Chuck, you were doing, uh, let's see, 105 in a... <laughs> so uh, you need to appear before the... You need to have this adjudicated, and so you're going to have to appear to court. So you go to court. And uh, and the judge says, how do you plead? And you say, well, Your Honor, I just was wanting to get there so bad. And I was so tired, and, I, yeah, and I, I am so sorry. And he says, well, so you, you, you admit you're guilty? Yes, sir, I'm, I was guilty. Okay, that'll be. Uh, by the way, the fines, I sat in a courtroom about two years ago. You know, when I was a kid growing up, like you, you ran a stop sign, it was like thirty-five bucks or something. You know, now it's like twelve hundred dollars or something weird. And it's crazy. It's just insane. Uh, but so they say. You know what's going to be twenty-five hundred dollars? You can pay the bailiff and you go home. And you say, uh, Your Honor, I don't have that with me. My wife's got all the money. She won't. She won't give me any of it for this purpose. <laughs> she says, you, you know, you made your bed now lie in it. So uh, and he says, Well, you have to go to jail then. And so Nick Bobo says, Your Honor. I want to I pay his fine. And the judge might say, well, Nick, you're not the one who was speeding. And uh, Nick says, I understand that, but I, he, Chuck's my friend, and uh, I'd like to pay his fine. Judge doesn't care who pays it as long as the fine is paid. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus said, I'll pay the fine. And no one else could have because if someone else had volunteered, they have their own fine to pay because all of sin and come short of the glory of God. But Jesus said, who had no sin, I will pay the fine. And because of that, we get to be free. Amen. Our judgment is settled. The fine has been met. He became sin for us, a judicial act of God. And this is the first time that really we have the meaning of reconciliation fully explained, whereby he became sin for us. And we have the righteousness of God. Because of what he did for us. The curse that was meant for us was put upon his shoulders. He bore the curse. He endured the wrath. It was as if he had, and, and this is what absolutely took my breath away last week as I, as I thought about it once again. Not the first time I thought about it, but just think of the worst thing you've ever done. The worst sin you've ever committed. And it's as if he had committed Not only that sin, but every other one we've ever committed. He took it upon himself. Last point today is the betrayal and the arrest. Have you ever been betrayed? If you're more than about two years old, you probably have been. Everybody has been betrayed at some point. Most of the time, we get betrayed by adversaries, right? Someone who's out to get us for whatever reason, so they betray us. They're not faithful, they're not loyal. They, they undercut you. They go behind your back. They betray you. An adversary, sure. Maybe a coworker, maybe someone wanting to advance themselves, and and uh, you know you're in the way, so they kind of uh, uh, you know they turn on you. Maybe a neighbor. Maybe you've had a neighbor that has betrayed you. How about a friend? King David lamented, "Even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my food, has turned against me." What about? family member. What about a husband or a wife who betrayed you? They came into the garden and Judas Iscariot walked up to Jesus Christ who had done nothing but teach him and pour into his life and be a friend to him and love on him and he put a traitor's kiss on his cheek. He betrayed him. They took him and they bound him. The very hands that had healed the sick. The very hands that had raised the dead. The very hands that broke the bread and passed the cup. That very same hand. Those very same hands that when an immoral woman was brought before him, he stooped down, you remember the Bible says, and he wrote, did you know that was in this very garden? He stooped down, the immoral woman's there, the, the religious leaders around him, they all have stones, they're ready to put to death this immoral woman, and, and Jesus stoops down and writes something in the dust, we don't know what it is, to this day we don't know what it is, that very hand that wrote in the dust, and then got up when all the accusers were gone, and said, where are your accusers, and she said, none, Lord, and he said, go and send no more, that very same Savior, his very same hands, now we're bound in that garden. Same hands that reached out when Peter was sinking in the water, taking his last breath. Maybe Jesus pulled him up out of the water. Those hands were bound. I don't know what they used, if it was ropes or chains. Neither one was an obstacle for him. Neither one could keep him if he didn't want them to keep him. If Samson could burst new ropes because of his human strength, what more could Jesus do with his divine strength? If the demoniac of Gadara could break chains, for crying out loud, with a superhuman strength, how much more could our Savior break the chains that held him? No, it wasn't the chains, the ropes that held his hands bound. It was love, love for you and me. And so they let him off and tried him. There were six trials, three before Jewish courts, three before Gentile courts. The three before Jewish courts were all illegal just briefly, they couldn't be tried at night, he was. A death sentence could not be issued for 24 hours, it was. Trials could not be one day before the Sabbath, it was. They could not be hastily done and convened, they were. They paid false witnesses, that was against the law. They compelled him uh, to, to testify against himself, which was not allowed, but they did. They failed to release him when witnesses couldn't agree on the stories that they paid him to say. And there were three trials before the Gentiles. First Pilate, then Herod, then back to Pilate. And Pilate tries to expiate his guilt with a basin of water and a towel. Then they took him to Gabbatha. From Gethsemane to Gabbatha, or Gabbatha. This term occurs 10 times in the Bible, usually alluding to the stone floor of the temple. Particular interest focused on the reference in 1 John 19 13, which says, uh, which refers to the pavement on which Jesus stood at his trials. Uh, it was a, a decisive moment uh, of the Roman phase of the trial when, Jesus, when they said Pilate had Jesus brought out and seated him on a chair of judgment at a place called the pavement, or in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. Here he was tried. Here he was condemned. Here he was scourged. Matthew 27, 26, Pilate released Barabbas unto them, and he ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman legions, the Roman soldiers to be crucified. This cat of nine tails, type of a multi-lashed whip, bits of lead, bits of glass, bits of bone, in the tips of these leather straps were brought down with such an incredible force to, to kind of do a popping, a whipping, a snapping motion that would rip and shred flesh. So severely beaten that it was not unusual for a person to die at the whipping post. And now the pain and the physical suffering intensifies beyond anything that we could understand. And he did all of that for you and for me. What have we done for him? The end began heavily in Gethsemane. It continued in severity in Gabbatha. It concludes with certainty at Golgotha. And we'll talk about that next week, the Lord willing. But that was not the end. The end came on Easter Sunday. I, I thought, about, it's good Friday, but better Sunday. Good Friday, but better Sunday because he rose from the dead. What can we do for him? We can take these Easter invitations back there and we can prayerfully give them to our neighbors and friends and coworkers. We can take the cross, put it in our front yard, put it in our front window, put it by your bunk. We can let people know we're not ashamed of him who died on the cross for us. We're not ashamed of the one who took upon himself our sins as if he were guilty of them and died for them so that we might live forever. Would you bow your heads, please? I know we have visitors here. I know we have people that I'm not sure about your spiritual relationship with the Lord. But as you think about what Jesus did for you, as you think about him taking upon himself our sin, does it move you to conviction? Does it move you to a godly sorrow? Does it move you to a point of wanting to to give your all for him, of sacrificing yourself as a living sacrifice, of crucifying the things that drag us down, crucifying the flesh that leads us astray so much of the time? How many would say, With every head bowed, every eye closed, how many would say, preacher, I appreciate what Jesus did for me in dying on the cross. Would you raise your hand real high? Hold it up real high. I appreciate what Jesus did for me. I suppose everybody in the house, thank you, you can put your hands down. How many would say, preacher, I'm not certain that I know the Lord. I'm not sure if I died, I'd be in heaven. And I want you to pray for me. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Just raise your hand up real high. Preacher, I'm not sure if I died, I'd go to heaven. God bless you and you and you. Yes. Anyone else? Anyone else? Thank you. you can put your hands down. God bless you. What do you have to do? What do you have to do? Know you're God's child. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. God hath raised him from the dead. He is the son of God. He became our sacrifice. He died on the cross. He loves you. He wants you to put your faith in him. You live your life by faith either in yourself or some other God, or you live your life with faith in Jesus Christ. It's your choice. He doesn't force you. So if you'd like to receive Christ as your personal Savior, just uh, you can pray in your own heart to the Lord. He knows what's in your heart right now. And I'm going to give you a sample, and you pray this to God with, with all your, your heart and soul and mind. Say something like this. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not worthy to be saved. I'm not worthy to be part of your family. But I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross. I believe he's your son. And I want to settle this thing once for all. So this morning, right here in this place, God, I pray you'd be my God Jesus, I pray you'd be my Savior. I put my faith in what you did for me on the cross. I believe you you were resurrected on the third day. And I trust you right now for everlasting life. Save me in Jesus' name with every head bowed. If you just prayed that prayer, you meant it. You're serious. Not playing a game. You meant it. Would you raise your hand up? Hold it up right now. God bless you. In a moment, we're going to sing a verse of invitation. And I want you who prayed that prayer to take one of those connection cards. I want you to fill it out. I want you to put on there, I prayed that prayer. I received Christ. I, I, I'm, I've, I'm seeking Christ. I'm following Christ. I want you to check that and turn that in. Your public profession is very, very important. Father, now bless this invitation we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? If you didn't get a cross and you'll take your cross today, I want you to come up and get it during the invitation. If you need to talk to someone, I'll be up here. My wife will be up here. Rachel will be up here. Fitz will be up here. uh, Marty's in the back over here. Whatever it is you need to do, if you just pray that prayer, you come as we sing this verse of invitation. down. We lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. The greatness of his mercy and love at the feet I ask you to be seated just for a moment again. A couple of weeks ago, we announced the choices for the new leadership team for the coming year. We've asked a commitment of one year because we'll be in that process of rewriting uh, the bylaws, and so some things might change as far as structure is concerned. So uh, I want to ask Jake Snyder if you would come to the front here right now, please. And uh, Jen, would you come stand with him, please? Um, and Jake is uh, in the United States Navy, has been attending here. Jen teaches the uh, Ladies Bible Study on Fridays, does a great job, and uh, Jake's going to be involved with our um, men's ministry breakfast, which are starting up again very, very soon. So stand right here. Nick Bobo, would you and Victoria come stand right here, also in the Navy, also involved in the the men's ministry that we'll be uh, re re reestablishing. And... uh, Victoria works with the MOPs program. I understand you're like the, you just got commissioned or something as a MOPs person, right? Are you like the chief MOP or what? Uh, Yeah, okay, all right. Not sure how that goes, but that's good. That's good. That's a great program. Mothers of preschoolers, so we appreciate that. Nick Ives, this is the third week in a row he's missed. He's been very ill with bronchitis, so he's not able to be here. And uh, uh, he is also uh, one of our new leadership team members contingent upon him uh, being baptized, which we'll take care of if he ever gets well, and uh, uh, Nick also uh, contingent upon uh, membership and uh, the next membership class, and then I'm going to ask Rachel, would you come and stand uh, also, and and Gary, would you come stand with her? Uh, Rachel's been on the leadership team. Marty, would you come, and Milo, would you come with him? Uh, This will constitute the leadership team uh, for a very important time in our church's history because um, of the, the structure, the bylaws that we'll be presenting to you for approval and, and uh, to revise and to change. So uh, I want you to know who they are. I want you to be much in prayer for them. Uh, what in the world is the criteria for those on a leadership team? Um, we've chosen 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, as the qualifications, criteria, characteristics of those that are on the leadership team. It says, likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in pure conscience, and let those also first be proven, and let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderous, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus." Um, we um, use those as qualifications, um, and in this proposed new bylaw change, they would also be, for legal purposes, the trustees of the corporation. And uh, so we want your prayers on their behalf. Let me share you a couple, a couple of more verses besides Romans 12, 1 and 2 that talks about presenting your bodies a living sacrifice and being not conformed to the world. It says this, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every person the measure of faith. For as we have been many members in one body and all members have not the same office, so we being many are not one body in Christ, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith or ministry, and the word for ministry there is the idea of serving, and everybody up here, uh, I am thankful to say, is is serving, and very happy to serve the Lord here through First Baptist Church, and says, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teaches on teaching, or he that exhorts on exhortation, he that gives, let him do it with liberality, he that rules with diligence, he that shows mercy with cheerfulness, and so uh, Romans 12, 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, a very, I think, important position, uh, to represent you in this position of leadership. So I'd like for you to do this. I'd like for you to stand. I'd like for you to come down here and let's get around them. We want to pray uh, for these folks as they enter into this uh, year of leadership. And uh, and so I'm going to ask that as they come, Chuck, would you mind leading us in prayer to begin? Would, would you do that, sir? blessing on these folks as they carry out their duties this coming year yes again thank you lord we ask in the, precious, the precious name of your son jesus Amen. father i thank you for each one who's been willing not only to have their name put on the list of uh, possible leadership team members but i thank you for um, the idea and the fact that they were nominated and that people have confidence in them lord i pray that we would um, be humble and not lifted up in our own eyes, but that we would depend totally upon you as we enter this very important time and season in our church's history. Father, we pray for your leadership by your Holy Spirit and pray everything would be done to your honor and glory. Thank you for the beautiful unity that's in this board already. And Father, we give, that, give all glory to you for that. We ask you to forgive us and uh, of our sins, to help us, Lord. Always be mindful of the fact that Christ died for us. And thank you for that fact, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I'm going to ask you to go back to your seats, and one more thing we need to do today, and this is an important thing, I'm going to ask Kyle and uh, Ariel to come up here with the newest member of their family, Ava, and while they're coming, right here, all right, and uh, how old is Ava now? What's today? The what is today? The 13th of March. So three months and three days. Three months and three days. All right. Has she asked for the car keys yet, Kyle? Not yet. Not yet. Yeah, that's, I'll pray for you when that time comes. I'll tell you what. Ava's such a blessing. She's an incredibly uh, beautiful baby, and we're so thankful for God's blessings upon them. And uh, you know what? When 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 Jesus, what's Jesus' attitude to our little children? Well. When they were trying to keep them away, he said, Now bring them unto me, for such is the kingdom of God. And what these parents have saddled upon them is the responsibility of raising this little girl to not only love and respect them, uh, but to love and to respect Almighty God. And uh, she's all eyes right now. Huh? She's saying, What's going on? And so uh, we're so thrilled and so happy to be able to dedicate, as Sarah did in the Bible days, um, her child to the Lord. So they want to dedicate Ava. So let's bow our heads together one more time this morning. Father, we're so grateful and thankful for Ava. We're so thankful for Ariel and Kyle and your blessings upon them and taking care of them physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every way. God, I pray that this little girl would come to know Jesus Christ as her Lord and as her Savior very early in life, and that would spare her a lot of hardship and a lot of difficult lessons that some people have to learn by not receiving Christ early on. And I pray, God, that you would give the parents special wisdom. She would help them to lead her in the way that would be glorifying to you. Father, thank you for children, the heritage of the Lord, the gift of God. And Lord, may we always be mindful they're made in your image. And so may we treat them in the way that would be honoring to you. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that's happened. Go with us, Lord. Help us to remember all day is the Lord's day and help us to be a good testimony for Jesus Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name and all the people said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being in God's house. Now get the invitations for Easter. Get your crosses and let's let the people know we're Christian.